0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to see you all here. Uh, This day is uh, about you. Uh, It's not really about the speaking team, uh, but it's about your participation, and uh, we're so glad that actually about 200 of us uh, uh, have come today, and we'll doubtless, a few extras will be arriving uh, over the next half an hour or so. So, welcome to our, our day conference. We're so glad that you've taken the time out of your busy schedules to be here and participate in it with us. And I want to thank especially Derek uh, for hosting us here at uh, City Center, um, and also for, to Jeffrey Ventrella and His Excellency Dennis Ignatius for being part of the speaking team today. I do believe you're in for a blessing and a treat for the 25 bucks or 50 bucks or 95 bucks that you may have parted with to be part of the day. I can guarantee you've got a bargain when you hear the men we have to speak today. So my task this morning really is to set the scene and set the tone for our day in considering the meaning of uh, culture And really uh, set up in broad terms what it is that we believe God's people, God's church is really called to in our time. So I want to read from two passages to begin with, and then we will uh, get into the detail. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and reading verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. And then we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Colossians 1 Reading from verse 15 through 20. He is the image, this is Christ, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, those two passages, I've read them for you because they say something very important about the status of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his church. These statements are all-encompassing. They leave absolutely nothing out of the authority, rule, and regency of the Lord Jesus. Now, to understand the Christian's relationship to culture, it's very helpful to go back to the beginning where the church first encounters the imperial cult of Rome, I don't have any PowerPoint, I'm afraid, uh, so, as Dennis Neon always says, "I make the points, and the Holy Spirit provides the power." Uh, <laughs> but uh, so follow along, and this material will be made available to you in a forthcoming edition of uh, Jubilee, in, but not all of it, so. It's worth taking notes. In the 2nd century AD, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch in Syria was hauled across Asia Minor, uh, where he was to be torn apart by beasts at Rome for the entertainment of the mob. Polycarp, another famous church father, Bishop of Smyrna and disciple of the Apostle John, was arrested and burned to death in AD 156. And a relative of the magistrate who arrested Polycarp was a Christian, and he tried to persuade Polycarp to save himself from death by simply saying, Caesar is Lord. Well, he refused and he perished in the flames. And the question becomes, when you look at the church in the first and second century, why did they have to make such a big issue out of so trivial a sounding matter? All they had to say was, Caesar is Lord. Why not just do it and get it over with? The church historian Ronald Baton writes, the Christians added to the Jewish formulation Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. The further confession, Christ is Lord. Not only the God of heaven and earth, but a malefactor crucified by the government of Rome was declared to have authority exceeding that of the emperor of Rome. The cult of Christ and the cult of Caesar were incompatible, end quote. This is why we read of the martyrs. Of the early church now I have to reflect on and absorb that statement to understand our present cultural crisis we have to go back to antiquity to look at the imperial policy of Rome the Roman Emperor saw the military victories of Rome as victories over other gods the victory of the Roman gods over other gods And the clear implication of this is that the warfare of peoples was a warfare between their gods. The culture wars here, then, was actually a war between cults. Someone's god was going to be victorious. But that didn't mean there wasn't toleration once you were in the Roman Empire. Inside of the Roman Empire, there was an official doctrine of toleration, Because all religions were to be tolerated in the lands of their origin, provided nobody contravened Roman law. The law of Rome must be supreme as the glue of the empire. And once you understand that, you understand the Roman social order, which followed naturally from it. Religion and politics were not separate in Rome any more than they are today. They just had the upfront honesty to acknowledge it and admit it. They were intertwined one with the other. Rome was the source of all sovereignty, and the emperor was the ultimate object of worship and allegiance. Pliny, the proconsul in Bithynia, he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan in 112 AD, which makes clear that, and I quote, the sole offense for which the Christians were put to death was their refusal to worship the emperor. And the test of... This is whether the accused refuses to curse Christ. End quote. So, a lot of people think that Christians were being persecuted by the Romans because you know, they worshipped Jesus or because they had certain practices. This is not so. They were persecuted because they refused to acknowledge the lordship, the sovereignty of Caesar as ultimate as the final authority and source of allegiance in their lives. Now, how does this help us in any way to understand our own cultural moment? In Canada today, in Europe, in the United States, we're not being executed for accepting the lordship of Christ. Although you should remember that there are people in communist countries and Islamic countries who are losing their lives for acknowledging and not retracting their convictions about the lordship of Jesus Christ. But we do live under the official state doctrine of tolerance which increasingly in the name of equality and compassion most of the time is determined to censor increasingly both in the private and in even the in, in the public but also even in the private sphere the preaching of the gospel, the moral standards of scripture, prayer, prayers of the citizens in the schools and corridors of power as well as free speech and various other infractions on our liberties. And this is a revived cult, a form of humanism, which sociologically today is best described as cultural Marxism. We call it political correctness, usually. Now, in this worldview, the Christian faith is portrayed, and you can't escape it in the media, as regressive, patriarchal, Draconian oppression, it serves the self-interest of white male middle-class misogynists who use the private family and Christian morality as a weapon, they say, to promote capitalism or class domination. And so what we have is whilst we are not being thrown to the lions or put in the gulags, what we do have is a cultural conflict in the realm of ideas. And if you follow the press and you read the judgments of the justices in this country, <clears throat> we're not winning. For the most part in the West, we're not winning. There is nothing new about this particular strategy. In 261 AD, Gelianus Galen- uh, issued the first edict of toleration in the Roman Empire. And its purpose was not to favor Christianity, it was to oppose it, but by a different strategy. They thought that throwing these Christians into the arena to be executed was maybe not the best way of winning the cultural battle. They decided that it needed to be waged in the area of propaganda. And they used this strategic propaganda and took the battle to the Christians in the area of ideas. Ideas. And they were well resourced, and today this battle is underway, and you are, as a Christian, engaged in it, whether you appreciate it or even want to be in it or not. Sometimes the propaganda today is framed in terms of what is called the official policy of political correctness, or it may relate to that. It often relates now to uh, policies on free speech, liberty, various regulations and so forth that are restricting increasingly the freedom of Christians. There is periodic resistance. In March 2010, there was a debate in the Senate of the Canadian Parliament in which Senator Doug Finley, concerning the erosion of freedom of speech, urged his fellow senators to recognize the extent to which he said state-sanctioned doctrines of political correctness in Canada have placed free speech under siege. And one of the main weapons in this has been the Human Rights Commissions. And this takes place now in the media and in the universities where very often pro-life groups are banned, for example. I'm just giving you, some he- I'm just giving you the headline-grabbing ones that make the National Post People are uh, censored from speaking in these universities. Whatever you think of Ann Coulter, for example, what happened in the University of Ottawa was a charade, nothing short of a disgrace for freedom and liberty in this country. People, in fact, last week, I told my congregation last week that a woman was recently issued a ticket by the government, a fine for Holding prayer and communion in a public building. She was fine, she's fighting this now in the courts. What decision the courts make with respect to this in this country will be very interesting. A government building that she had rented for a private purpose, and she's been sent a ticket for praying in there and having a Christian celebration. Whether it's banning of these groups, gag orders, fines, preventing debates, sensitivity training for clergy, fining people who speak out on issues of marriage or uh, sexual practices, it's not surprising that these attacks are focused almost exclusively on Christians. Section 13.1 of the Human Rights Act forbids any material or speech likely to cause offense to people on the grounds of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation. And here, proof of your intent isn't required. The truth is not a defense. If somebody feels that you have offended them, you can take them to one of these tribunals. If you're offended by what I've said today, you can take me to the courts. And I have to pay. For my own defense, you don't have to pay for bringing a scurrilous charge, that your feelings were hurt. These are just the headlines. Christian evangelism in such a view cannot be seen as anything other than falling foul of this kind of policy because true Christian evangelism in proclaiming the gospel calls all men and women everywhere to repentance and a changed life that excuse anything to do with idolatry or immorality. So how can evangelism finally be free from censure? Well, <clears throat> those are just a couple of headlines that you were all familiar with long before you came here today. What is the calling of Christians in the midst of this culture war that's being w- waged around us? Periodically, I'm on this show called The Culture Wars, John Oakley show, 6.40 a.m., I think it is, where we discuss all manner of these kinds of questions. And so I get to the entertaining task of reading all manner of ridiculous things that are taking place in this country. But actually, when you think about them, they're not funny. The first thing is we can't distance ourselves from culture or hide from it. We have to understand the meaning of culture And begin to think biblically about it. The Bible tells us that Christ is over and transcends culture as our Creator, our Redeemer, and our King. We've read this morning that He is reconciling all things to Himself. He is Head over all things. He created all things. He governs all things. He rules all things. And so we cannot just step back and say, oh, well, we'll just hold up our hands and say, well, the world's a mess. Never mind. We have to take responsibility as Christians. All things have been made subject to Him, the Bible says, and He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, God's word are not culturally relative, they don't change with time, they're not revised in terms of the spirit of the age. The apostle writes, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so the transformation of culture by faithfulness to the gospel and to the whole word of God is central to the Christian's calling. That's the first thing. I'm going to defend that, but I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to be mindful of the nature of the conflict. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our battle is spiritual and it's a struggle for the hearts and minds of people. And we must be cognizant all of the time of the presence of the Holy Spirit, giving us the ability, the strength, and the tools to be part of this Struggle. It's the Holy Spirit alone who convinces the world scripture says of sin righteousness and of judgment And thirdly this spiritual war that we waged That we wage today requires us to be faithful in every area of life to God's word and to the gospel in our families in our communities You see we look at what's going on out there. We don't start and begin by saying how do we fix that? The way we begin is saying How do we look at ourselves, our own lives, our own families, our own churches, our own communities? How do we fix those first? That matters what's going on out there, but the starting point is our own lives. That's where we begin. We can't be Pharisees, point to everybody else and everything else, without dealing with and grappling with the challenge in our own lives. And it's recognizing that God's Word is relevant to every area of life, not just a truncated aspect of my personal devotional life, but every area of life, God's Word speaks to it. The legal scholar John Warwick Montgomery says, and I quote, how tragic if we compartmentalize our lives. Restricting biblical understanding to local church activities and personal relationships never recognizing that every substantive aspect of our legal discipline can and should be seen in the light of Christ, end quote. Well, what's true for the lawyer and those in the legal discipline, and we're going to be hearing from Jeffrey later today of the Alliance Defense Fund, it's true for every aspect of our lives in every field of human endeavor. And if we don't begin to take God's word, And apply it to all these aspects of life, we will never be able to comprehend, never mind emulate, why Polycarp and Ignatius went to their deaths for the statement, Jesus is Lord. Because if they'd had a dualistic, privatized Christian faith, they could have quite easily said, well, it doesn't really matter what I say out there, that's just the government, that's just the state, that's just the emperor. I'll just say, well, Caesar is Lord, it doesn't matter, because over here I'm a Christian. We cannot understand the power and advance of the church through the early centuries and the reason God blessed them so greatly without recognizing that this was the principle by which they stood, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and they died for that confession. We will remain irrelevant to the crisis of our age, and the faith will pass like wind in the prairies in this country if we do not stand for the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives and in our churches and in our communities. The Jewish scholar David Klinghofer says that when we bow out of declaring and making known and making manifest the lordship of Christ and his sovereignty over all things, when we do that and we turn aside from God and his law, he says this, we have inevitably, by definition, turned toward idolatry the Bible recognizes only these two states of existence you have either cast your lot with God or with the idols the great the greatest codifier of biblical law mammonides put the idea in stark terms all who affirm idolatry reject the whole of God's teaching all the prophets and that which was commanded to the prophets from Adam to the end of the world since both liberal religion and secularism deny traditional norms of behavior as rooted in the Bible, both equally represent a turn toward paganism, end quote. So the question of culture-making, and this is a takeaway for you, is a question of lordship. A question of culture-making is a question of lordship. It's idolatry or True worship. Is Jesus Lord or is some other God Lord? The character and shape of our culture depends upon our answer to that question. So, what is culture? I keep using the term. What is it? Well, that's the first task is to ask, what is culture? It is confusing. Let's acknowledge that at the outset. It is a little bit confusing. One of the uh, finest historians, one of the certainly most noted historians of our time, Jacques Barzun, writes of the difficulty of understanding this term in its contemporary use. He says, culture, what a word. Up to a few years ago, it meant two or three related things, easy to grasp and keep apart. Now, it is a piece of all-purpose jargon that covers a hodgepodge of overlapping things. How did a simple metaphor from agriculture lose its authority and get burdened with meanings for which there are other perfectly good words? Well, that's a good question. And in the bewildering way of applications of culture, we can get very confused, and especially Christian cultural analysis, too. There are a lot of social commentators and sociologists writing today in Christian circles talking about culture. And it's very overused, so that we speak of urban cultures, subcultures, business culture, organizational culture, arts culture, gay culture, multiculturalism, and then we don't really know what we mean at the end of all of that. We've got no idea what we're really talking about. Well, what were the original primary definitions of this term? They're very instructive. It's a word derived from cultivation, and its meaning has been almost forgotten. The Latin verb colere, from which we derive this term, refers to a tilling of the ground in order to grow things. A tilling of the ground in order to grow things. So when you look at the older dictionary definitions of the term, they render the noun culture in the following way. A state of being cultivated, a state of being cultivated, and a type of civilization, a state of being cultivated and a type of civilization. So what you have going on here is the state of being cultivated in individuals creates a type of civilization. The state of being cultivated in individuals creates a type of civilization and is the result of an intellectual and moral tilling of the person. Think about it for a moment. In your grandparents' generation a educated mature civilized individual was called cultured they were cultured if they were civilized if they were educated if they were rounded if they were moral people they were considered cultivated cultured people now your state of being is the essence of all religious questions what kind of a being are you you created being Are you a regenerated being? The state of being cultivated creates a type of civilization. And that is why culture, I think, has been most aptly summarized as religion externalized. There's a take-home. Culture is religion externalized. It's very simple to prove. If you go to Pakistan, where my parents lived for 15 years, or you go to Saudi Arabia you will see Islamic culture. There's a good reason for that. 90 plus percent, I think 96% somewhere there, or more of the country's population are Muslims. So you have Sharia law. And you have Islamic education. You have an expression of Islam manifest in the culture. The same with Saudi Arabia. If you go to India, in large parts of India... The dominant faith is still Hinduism. And that creates a social order as well, because basic to Hinduism is the caste system. And so you find Hindu culture. You come to the West now, what do you find? Exactly. We don't know. Well, you kind of find largely humanism or secularism with cultural remnants of Christianity that's what would it be best described as there are cultural artifacts in our language our literature our beliefs our architecture which still speak of the Christian faith but the essence of that faith is being eroded and replaced with another religious perspective now civilizations or cultures rise and fall as beliefs take concrete shape and then through various stresses collapse and fail And what is taking place right now has been described as the falling off or the decadence of the West, is that through humanism and our state-sponsored polytheism, that is philosophical pluralism, with its sociologically our cultural Marxism or political correctness, we're seeing this fragmentation in our culture. So what you read in the newspapers and what you see taking place in our culture is because polytheism... Or the attempt to have <coughs> excuse me the attempt to have a pluralistic mindset governed by a, uh, an ultimate humanism means that people are desperately trying to hold together completely different and competing forms of worship, just as the Roman Empire tried to keep all those cults together. And in trying to hold all those cults together, it had to increasingly affirm the ultimacy of the emperor and punish with more and more severe sanctions those who disagreed. We are seeing in our time not only family fragmentation, we're seeing social decay, we're seeing economic meltdown, and that's a moral failure, by the way. In my own home country, we've seen riots and the burning of London in the past few months we are seeing increasing forms of unrest and delinquency. And it's in the midst of all of this that Christians are saying, what's going on? What's happening? What is happening to our culture and our age? How do we respond? Well, culture involves prejudice. Now, don't quote me on that out of context. Culture involves inescapably prejudice. What do I mean by that? No culture can be neutral. To be neutral means to be neither one thing nor another. That's what neuter, neutral means, to be neither one thing nor another. Every social order, every civilization is inescapably committed in the institutions of the family, of the academy, of law and arts and government, to a cultural consensus. It may be humanistic, it may be Hindu, it may be Islamic, it may be Christian, but there is an illusory idea today of a prejudice-free space for the equal toleration of all gods. The problem is all these gods claim a total regency. Does Islam accept that Jesus Christ is Lord? Does Hinduism embrace the Lordship of Christ? Does humanism accept it? No, a prejudice-free space is a myth, and it's used as a gateway to facilitate the establishment of a new intolerance. Tolerance, as a doctrine, is used as a byword, as a as a pathway to establishing a new form of intolerance. Think about it. What we tolerate says everything we need to know about ourselves. What you tolerate says everything you need to know about yourself. What you think is tolerable and what you think is intolerable. The noted social critic, Theodore Dalrymple, has a wonderful illustration for this when he says this. To overturn a prejudice is not to destroy prejudice as such. It is rather to inculcate another prejudice. When George Bernard Shaw characterized marriage as a legalized form of prostitution... He was not so much demanding justice and equality for women as he was encouraging the dissolution, even as an ideal, of a permanent bond between a man and a woman. Unfortunately, mass bastardy is not liberating for women, end quote. You see what he's saying? When you overturn a prejudice, you are not ridding yourself of prejudice and having a prejudice-free space. You are instituting a new prejudice the removal of one prejudice that is the christian concept of marriage doesn't lead to a neutral approach to marriage it remains the dissolution of the family as the cultural norm do you see which is a prejudice because you cannot be without prejudices and neither can i prejudice is not a dirty word we've turned it into one Give me two minutes with you, and I will show you that you are a very prejudicial person. And you ought to be. Because a person who is not prejudiced against something and for something is dead. Certainly from the neck upwards. (laughs) Political scientists and historians understand that dissent can only be tolerated in any civilization to a certain degree, after which that social order commits suicide. That is, Rob Ford right now is thinking of whether he should move on the protesters in St. James Park. Why? Well, how much disorder and chaos is a culture, a civil order, able to tolerate? That's a question that every government asks about those kind of actions. That's precisely why in the Western world we have always punished treason seriously. Why? Why? Because treason is seen as overstepping the bounds, of overstepping the mark of hostility towards your own social order. If you didn't punish treason, then where would the idea of concept of national security be? That's what a state, that's what governors ask themselves. This is why conversion to Christianity is illegal in many parts of India. It's a crime in most Islamic states. It's why a free church is illegal in communist countries and remains persecuted in places like China and North Korea, amongst others. Because these governments logically fear that if Christianity takes hold amongst the people and the gospel is propagated, there would be a shift, perhaps a monumental shift, and the demise of their power. And one of the first things that these types of governments do is they begin a suppression of sorts. So there's been a revival of suppression recently in China. Sometimes they will even turn to mass executions. And by that point, usually that social order is unable to save itself. It is inescapably turning. Because once you have to resort to that kind of activity, you've lost really the people. If you look at places that have seen persecution right now in Asia and in Africa, we're seeing new Christian cultures emerging. Right now, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, is trying to bribe the African nations which receive British aid. It's actually despicable, it's wicked, but he is trying to bribe them publicly and openly and politically to endorse publicly homosexuality and gay marriage, otherwise they will no longer be recipients of British aid commonwealth countries and to their credit many of those african presidents have saying who made you god to tell us how we should culturally and morally live our lives you can keep your aid and so they should culture then is inescapably related to the cult these are related words cult culture cult and culture. The Roman imperial cult in the early centuries saw the claims of Christians regarding the lordship of Christ not simply as religious in the modern sense, by which we usually mean separated from the real world, separated into a religious sacred realm away from the other realms, but they saw the claims of Christians as socio-cultural, even political in their scope and therefore threatening. When Peter got up, for example, in Acts chapter four, verse 12 and said, there is no other name. Salvation is found in no, no one else for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. He was responding to a edict, a statement by the Roman emperor of the age who had said there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved in the name of Caesar. This was Peter's response. This didn't make Christians bad citizens. They were the best citizens. They paid their taxes. The Greeks should learn. Sorry, if you're Greek in here, no offense. They honored the government and the king, they respected authority. But they recognized the lordship of Christ and they worked to that end. The Roman emperor and the senate did not pretend like many Christians today that religion and politics were unrelated matters. They knew they were inextricably linked together. But Paul challenges this worship of the emperor, the priestly state, when he says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pagan world saw this as audacious, utterly audacious. And the church claimed not only the lordship of Christ, but they claimed that they had an ambassadorial status in Christ, that they were ambassadors of the Lord. Now, His Excellency Dennis Ignatius is speaking to you later today, and uh, he represented Malaysia as the Malaysian High Commissioner to various countries for years as an ambassador, as a representative of his nation. Now, the scripture says that you and I are ambassadors in this way. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God making his appeal through, you, through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the role of the church, to be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when Paul wraps up his letter to the Philippians, and I'm teaching Philippians at the moment at Westminster, he in his greeting says something very interesting. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. At this very early stage in the life of the church, Caesar's own household, that could have been his high officials, could have been servants, could have, we don't know, but there were obviously more than one, that already a new lord and a new king had invaded the household of Caesar. The gospel, ambassadors for Christ, were now in the household of Caesar. Now, when Constantine came to power, and I haven't got time to do a survey of uh, the alleged boogeyman of Christian history, Constantine, but a very good book has recently been written about him called Defending Constantine by Richard Leithart, and I recommend you get that book and read it for a more balanced historical perspective on Constantine but when he came to power in the colossal emergence of the faith throughout the empire One of the things he did is he abolished the bloodletting of the Roman arena He reformed the law in a number of ways that was certainly more Christian than it had been He built churches and hospitals and funded Poverty relief now to understand the significance of what he did in, in getting rid of the bloodletting of the arena You have to understand that the arena for Rome was religious it was where sacrifice and really atonement took place. The bloodletting was a sacrificial pagan concept. and It was believed there that the vitality and power of Rome and the worship of its gods was on display. So by doing that, a revolution was underway in Rome. Even though he'd only at this point said there can be an equal, role, equal rights for Christians in the empire, a revolution was underway as soon as he was rid of the roman arena it's interesting that in our time we seem to be reintroducing the arena men killing each other in cage fighting for example it used to be that we had at least dignity in the way we conducted our sporting conflicts now we think it's entertaining to watch two men rip each other to pieces we are moving back in that direction inescapably Applied faith, then, transforms those who embrace and are influenced by it and has far-reaching consequences for the family, for vocations, for law, for art, for state, and thus for culture. And counter-revolutions against the Christian faith are equally radical, since they are anti-Christ and invariably evil. Robespierre, for example, and his French revolutionaries could not tolerate a free church During the French Revolution, they murdered thousands of people in the name of reason and enthroned the goddess of reason at Notre Dame. they worshipped it. We have such people still, of course. Equally, people like Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, who murdered their tens of millions in the 20th century, in terms of their various cults, could not tolerate a free church. They had to eliminate the lordship of Christ. And in the same way, we're seeing step by step these efforts, which seem small at first, seem innocuous at first, to eliminate freedom of speech, to eliminate Christians' rights of assembly and worship and so on, seem innocuous at first, very quickly, become rulings like the one we've just heard from the British High Court in the United Kingdom where a Christian family was denied the right of adoption even on appeal because the judge said that the Christianity was inimical to the health of a child. This is happening. Right now, in our own time, there's nothing new about this shift. It didn't happen overnight. We didn't wake up last week and find that the culture was changed. It's been changing. Consider the words of the Bloomsbury novelist Virginia Woolf in a 1928 letter, which she wrote to her sister, on the news that T.S. Eliot had been converted to Christianity. This is how much 20th century intellectuals have despised the Christian faith. She writes this, Virginia Woolf. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become an Anglo-Catholic, believes in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God, end quote. Well, what was obscene to Virginia Woolf had given her the liberty to express, express her revulsion at the Christian faith. We have to admit certain... Uh, Exceptions to this generalization seen in times of political upheaval and church-state conflict, usually over the issue of religious freedom like the English Revolution. But freedom of conscience and speech have only flourished in Christian-dominated societies. Christian cultures to the greatest degree have permitted Within biblical bounds, freedom to believe or not to believe and express non-violent dissent so long as the law is obeyed. That freedom and equality under the law is disappearing fast. And uh, if you doubt that, I recommend to you Harold Berman's book, Law and Revolution. It's a two-volume work, which looks at what's taking place in law in the West since the Reformation. You see, friends... Our culture can't be one thing nor another. It may be full of competing claims, but it is impossible for it to be one thing or another. Culture shapers are tilling the minds of others with a specific worldview in mind, which means somebody's morality will be legislated. Somebody's philosophy is going to be taught in schools. Somebody's vision of beauty and uh, transcendence is going to be idealized in the arts. John Frame puts it this way, people make things because they already have a plan in view, a purpose, a goal, an ideal. The ideal comes first, then the making things. First the norm, then the cultivation, the culture, end quote. He's right. You have an ideal, you have a goal, a state of being that is being idealized, and then you go about making it, shaping it. Killing the minds of people in terms of it. And it comes down to, finally, a question then of religion, because we're talking about values and ideals. St. Augustine identified only two seeds in history and two kingdoms. He said there's the city of God, there's the city of man, there's true worship, and there's false worship. Simple as that. There's true and false worship idolatry leads to a corrupt culture based on false worship worship of the living god in jesus christ leads to a radically different though imperfect because we're fallen culture let me put it to you in layman's terms when i was growing up in the 70s you could still pay the milkman by leaving cash in a milk bottle outside your front door that's 40 years ago. Uh, not four, I'm not 40 yet. <laughs> 35 years ago. 30 years ago. You think about that for a minute. You could pay the milkman or whoever else by leaving cash in an envelope in your milk bottle at the front door. Well, since we recognize the religious character of culture... How do we, in these last few minutes, grasp the biblical vision of culture and its theological underpinnings? I'm going to leave Jeffrey and Dennis to fill in the details. It's easy to get lost in this vast array of analysis, as we've said. And what happens is, for example, when you read certain books, which are often helpful, some school of thought or some philosopher or some movement is identified as the main cause of our cultural decline. So some people identify modernism, some people identify the counterculture of the 60s, some identify the Industrial Revolution, some identify the now somewhat passé concept of postmodern criticism. Some point to the utopian dreamers like Plato and others, Ernesto Guevara, for example who Dalrymple says, "...if it hadn't been for a photograph taken by the Cuban photographer Alberto Corda, Ernesto Guevara would have been recognized by now as the arrogant, adolescent, power-hungry egotist that he undoubtedly was." And with that, I wholeheartedly agree. But you can point to any number of different characters and say, "...it's their fault. It's the fault of this movement. It's the fault of that movement." And however valuable some of that analysis may be, it's not the starting point for us understanding our relationship to culture. What we don't want to be doing at a day conference like this is simply blaming everybody else. The primary turning point, of course, for culture was the fall of our first parents. What happened at the fall was that, as cultures have replayed in history, is that we said that we wanted to be our own gods. You will be as God That was the temptation, knowing for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood, making those determinations. And since then, cultures have replayed this desire for autonomy from God, for independence from his truth and his reality. And that leads us in our time to a tremendous chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis called it. Everything that's most recent is best and most likely right. Incredibly arrogant, isn't it? being is that we are probably the least educated westerners in 500 years really i'm not saying that we don't know how to split the atom but we can't spell we can't do arithmetic for the most part we've got 42% functional illiteracy in this country yet we still think we are better and no more than everybody else in every previous century put together remarkable how smart we are even genetically we're getting more stupid that's a fact there's mutations building up in the human genome. We're likely not as smart or resourceful as people were 2,000 years ago. We've built on their knowledge, certainly. But we can blame the Marxists, the rationalists, the irrationalists, the moderns, the postmoderns, and so on and so forth, the anarchists, the proletariat, whatever it may be, different groups and so on. But in the end, Adam and Eve were rationalist and irrationalist in their response to God, really. Irrational in rejecting the authority of God and his word. Rationalist in thinking that they could construct and define reality for themselves. Western history has not been a linear movement from the heights of Greek culture and its rationalism to the lows of our current situation because there were cynics amongst the Greeks. The cynics were, well, hedonists of an extreme variety didn't think truth could be known, practiced all manner of perversity that is not mentionable here. There's always been an interplay between these ideas of man's rationalism and then irrationalism, of totalitarian ideas and chaos on the other hand. John Frame writes, he says, so the problem is not history, the problem is sin. Culture is bad today, but Sodom and Gomorrah were probably not any better, nor were Tyre and Sidon, Nineveh, Babylon, Rome, Rome Capernaum, Chorazin, or Beth Seder. end quote. So we face the reality of fallen cultures in a fallen world, and we have to begin by recognizing that the cultural task was given by God and mandated to humanity. It was given to our first parents. Fill the earth, multiply, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so forth. The filling of the earth presupposes the family to home and multiplication. And the mandate to rule and subdue means the development of the earth to turn creation into culture. You know, people who idealize the noble savage right from the French Revolution, who say that humanity is best expressed the, the, least, the, the less civilized you are, the closer you are to humanity, hence the resistance to missions. Especially today, you shouldn't touch untouched cultures especially. That's cultural genocide. If people are running around killing each other and scalping each other or eating each other, leave them be. It's the noble savage. If it occurs in nature, it's good. People idealize, therefore, uncultivated areas of land. But if you don't cultivate the land, it isn't good for anything. You can't grow in it, anything in it. You can't be productive. doesn't mean we shouldn't preserve forests and so forth. Don't get me wrong. Creation care is part of the biblical mandate. It's been hijacked by the Greens. It's our mandate. We are to subdue the earth, care for the earth, cultivate the earth, turn creation into culture. We are not slaves in the earth, as the humanists would have it. We're not slaves of our environment or of our DNA. Neither are we victims of fate. We are vice regents in the earth under God, according to Scripture, spreading his glory, fulfilling his purposes. And so God's commands, our culture-making is always tied to God's requirements. His commandments, his desires, his norms. So as we go about family life, And vocational life and church life and every other aspect of life, we do so in obedience to God. So the Apostle Paul could say, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So even though cultures today act out their rebellion against God and do not live and work in terms of his glory... Often they build out of a hatred towards God. That's to be expected, given what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 5 through 8. That does not mean that non-Christians can't do anything valuable or useful in art and science and culture and so forth, but they don't do so in an ultimate sense, because it's never directed towards God's glory and God's honor and God's purposes. Only then are we truly fulfilling the mandate God has given us. When people are born, though, anew into Christ and we regenerate in Christ, what happens? That old Adam, what does Paul tell us there? He says, He says, we are a new creation. We're a new creation. The old is gone. That desire for rebellion and hostility towards God, that's gone. The new has come. And we are reoriented in our lives, in our thoughts, in word and deed, to do what God requires us to do with delight and with excellence for his glory. And when Christians begin to do that, of course, it has a dramatic impact upon culture because culture is what we make of God's creation, of God's world. And there's not a square inch of this universe which God does not claim for himself, which Christ does not claim for himself. We are to express the totality of his reign and his purposes in our lives and recognize with the early church that Jesus Christ is still Lord, because he's made new creations out of us. In fact, scripture calls us a new race in 1 Peter 2, verse 10, who build new cultures, not by revolution, but by regeneration, faithfulness, and obedience. And if you're thinking, well, that's the creation mandate, that's long since passed, God actually restates it to Noah in Genesis 9, and Jesus restates it again in his Great Commission in Matthew 28. 19 19 through 20 when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age now if we did that and were effective in doing so do you think our families our communities, and therefore our culture might change. Maybe we can pay the milkman again by leaving cash in the bottle. Maybe there would be transformation in all these areas of life for the glory of God. We are told to comprehensively teach the nations to obey obey everything that Christ has commanded. And that word teach there in the Greek literally means discipline. Let me cite John Frame one more time. He says, the gospel creates new people who are committed to Christ in every area of their lives. People like these will change the world. They will fill and rule the earth for the glory of Jesus. They will plant churches and establish godly families. They will also establish hospitals, schools, arts, and sciences. That is what has happened by God's grace, and that is what will continue to happen until Jesus comes. You might say to me, Joe, wrapping up here, but not everyone agrees with this. Not everyone agrees that we should really engage the culture. I mean, aren't there really two kingdoms? There's the church, and we obey God, and then there's the world, and that just runs in terms of natural laws and common grace and just general God's general benevolence in history. Surely we're not really surely there's not, as Michael Horton puts it, a Christian way to do chicken stir-fry? Well, I would give that some very careful thought if I were you. Is there not a Christian way to even prepare food? You see, the defense of the view of saying there's two kingdoms comes down to this. Look, We don't need a Christian form of education or a Christian form of arts or sciences or anything because, look, our neighbor basically agrees with us anyway on what it should be like. They agree that you should be honest in business and that uh, you should respect life and uh, that you should have excellence in education and honesty in business and so on. But the question is, friends, why do some—by the way, that cultural consensus is fast disappearing— I would argue. So I think that's wrong for a start. But let's just assume most of your neighbors did agree. Why is it that they agree? Is it because there is some other kingdom out there, some general natural law that makes everybody agree with the Christian perspective? Or is it because Christianity has been at work in our lands for 2,000, well, 1,500 years and effective missions took place? Well, I think I can prove that to you as I wrap up here with the most unlikely source, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, on his tour on the HMS Beagle, despite his growing agnosticism and deistic convictions, could not help be impacted by the missionaries in Tahiti and the Pacific Islands. He was astonished by their work. In his journal of his journey around the world he heaped praise on evangelical missions. And this is what he said. Listen very carefully. It appears to me that the morality and religion of the inhabitants are highly creditable. There are many who attack both the missionaries, their system, and the effects produced by it. Such reasoners never compare the present state with that of the island only 20 years ago or even with that of Europe at this day, but they compare it with the high standard of gospel perfection. They forget or will not remember that human sacrifices and the power of an idolatrous priesthood, a system of profligacy unparalleled in any other part of the world, infanticide, a consequence of that system, bloody wars where the conquerors spared neither women nor children, that all these have been abolished and that dishonesty, intemperate, and licentiousness have been greatly reduced by the introduction of Christianity. In a voyager, to forget these things is base ingratitude, for should he chance to be at the point of shipwreck on some unknown coast, he will most devoutly pray that the lesson of the missionary may have extended thus far. Those who are most severe should consider how much of the morality of the women in Europe is owing to the system early impressed by mothers on their daughters and how much in each individual case to the precepts of religion. But it is useless to argue against such reasoners. I believe that, disappointed in not finding the field of licentiousness quite so open as formerly they will not give credit to a morality which they do not wish to practice or to a religion which they undervalue if not despise, end quote. What is Darwin saying? He's saying that the only reason you and I are not eating human stir-fry rather than chicken stir-fry is because of the Christian gospel. My ancestors were drinking the blood of the dead before Christianity came to Scotland. It is the reason what we describe as cultural hegemony exists around us, and people generally agree about this and generally agree about that, although that agreement, that consensus is disappearing, is because of the Christian faith and the explicit witness of the church. That's what we are called to That's what God wants from us in our time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.